And happy Friday. Today is September 22nd, and this is episode 6 22nd. of our Google Hangouts and Podcasts on all things Doctus. I'm Brady Volp, founder of the Volp Firm and Nimble This. With me is John Downey, consulting network engineer at Cisco Systems. John, it seems like only yesterday since we saw each other. <laughs> and it was, or maybe two days ago. <laughs> no, yeah, uh, yeah, I guess we didn't see each other yesterday. It was the day before at uh, Cable Tech Expo. And actually, that's what we're going to be talking about today, SCTE Cable Tech Expo. It was in Denver, Colorado, where uh, both John and I were at. So we're going we're gonna to be covering uh, some of the show highlights that we saw, some of the seminars and sessions. Um, but before we get into that, I'd like to thank everyone who contributed to this year's Cable Tech Expo to make it a great event. There's a lot of work that goes into the show, whether you've attended the show or not, um, it, you really have to, to appreciate all the work that goes into it. This year, I participated in, in uh, well, you know, both I, con I contributed as a speaker there, but I also participated in reviewing a lot of the workshop papers. And uh, so I got a glimpse into some of the effort that goes on behind the scenes, and, and, and I really like to, to go, you know, a special shout out to all the SCTE staff, board members, contributors, and also the vendor companies that uh, put all the hard work that goes into making it uh, such a great event. So really, you know, thank you to everyone uh, that, that puts all the hard work into that. It's, it's, it really shows at the show, and this year was absolutely a, a wonderful Cable Tech Expo. So thank you very much. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's a fine line and a compromise between how much show floor time how much workshop time, and they used to manipulate when the workshops would run, when the show floor was open, and they're finally, I think, hitting their stride a little bit where they're not overlapping too much. It used to, as, as a presenter for seven years in a row, and then I took the last two years off from presenting, it was difficult to support the floor and do the workshops and try to hit everything. Uh, the workshops were, the ones I attended were really good. I also have a rule of thumb of myself where I look at who the speakers are in the workshop and I know from experience which ones are really good speakers, which ones aren't going to do death by PowerPoint, um, who know their topic and it's, so it's not just for me the topic alone, it's also who is speaking in the topics. I know SCTE now requires video uh, abstracts to prove that it's a good presentation and you're not just going to do you know reading bullet points to me. I don't need anyone to read to me, obviously. <laughs> so it was right. good. I, I, I enjoyed it. Yep. So the um, so Monday we kicked off with the symposium and uh, at the symposium we the morning session was on Wi-Fi and the afternoon session was on DOCSIS 3.1 and also proactive network maintenance. And also, uh, the Wi-Fi session also included some proactive network maintenance. So this this year at the show and throughout the show, it seems like this is the year of Wi-Fi, DOCSIS 3.1, and proactive network maintenance. The, the Wi-Fi sessions were actually really, really quite good. Uh, a lot of people covered aspects of how, you know, Wi-Fi uh, is... The, the, the Wi-Fi access points themselves are not always completely optimized. 
And so some of the issues that you have, especially in apartment buildings and even houses adjacent to each other, you really only have three frequencies that you can put your access points on, 1, 6, and 11. And you have a neighbor next door, you, you know, have to make sure that you have, uh, you're not overlapping each other. But also other challenging things that you don't necessarily think about is that uh, if you have someone walking around uh, with a computer or a cell phone that has Wi-Fi and they're on a, a neighboring channel or they're on the same channel as you, how that's going to impact your own Wi-Fi and, and you don't think about some of these things and, and that adjacency will slow down your network. And one of the things that is really, really interesting, you know, we think about antennas and stuff like that. So we, we think we're going to boost our Wi-Fi speed by putting a larger antenna on the access point. It just doesn't work like that because Wi-Fi is limited by, it's like the weakest link. So the device in your house that's further, furthest away from your Wi-Fi access point is going to limit your speed. So, you know, they talked about how you can put more Wi-Fi access points in your home, and, and there's just a really a lot of good information was discussed in there. So, I, you know, I really recommend that people get some of those papers and go through and read the papers to fully understand some of the, the options that can improve the, the technology of, of Wi-Fi in your home. So that, that was a morning session, fantastic session, uh, if, you, if you had the opportunity to sit down and, and go through it. Now the, let, me add, let me add. Let me add. I think the theme there was almost for the whole show, just like you're saying, is how to utilize existing equipment or newer CPE customer premise equipment for troubleshooting. Like we use cable modems now for proactive network maintenance, looking at the pre-Q taps, get an idea of potential problems. We can do the same thing with the Wi-Fi, kind of finding like hot spots uh, and understanding how to utilize or exploit existing CPE for troubleshooting. Would you right. agree? Yeah, and so you're bringing up an important important point. It's it's the connected home, and you know when 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 we just had a cable modem in a home, and a computer that wasn't Wi-Fi. The computer was directly connected to the cable modem. This was really a simple thing for cable techs, home installers to troubleshoot. Now the connected home is completely different because most most you know you get a laptop nowadays. It may not even have an Ethernet port on it. It's all Wi-Fi. And so when you go in and you install that cable modem, that cable modem is really not the DMARC for the cable operator anymore. They're trying to troubleshoot uh, some guy that's doing a speed test from his cell phone, calling the cable operator and saying, I'm not getting 25 megabits per second from my cell phone. Why is that? Well, he may have you know, a son and a daughter that's watching Netflix at the same time he's doing a speed test. And, and, and they also have interference from the adjacent home that's has the on the same frequency as our Wi-Fi network. So to your point, how do we manage this connected home? How do we troubleshoot this? And this becomes this becomes a challenge for cable operators, right? Of course. I mean, you talk about the interference. I mean, I have two wireless AC point or access points right beside each other, and I purposely took the antennas off of one of them because I hardly use the wireless side. So I wanted to sort of shut it down so it wasn't interfering with my other one. This headset right here, the one that you called really old that looks like I'm an airline pilot. It's at 2.4 gigahertz as well. So it's also Wi-Fi. It's not Bluetooth. So at least I can walk farther away, but it could interfere with, you know, my other wireless devices, obviously. Yeah, well, I, I, I did get a call from 19... <laughs> I got a call from 1999. They, they want your head, their headset back, so... <laughs> All right, so I got to pull out my props. There you go. <laughs> What's your vector, Victor? <laughs> I've cleared Clarence. <laughs> 
but I agree the the wireless stuff and using the wireless CPE now it's not just the PNM from the cable modems proactive network maintenance it's utilizing the wireless devices as well kind of like um, finding hot spots and, and and understanding better optimization of wireless access points and things like that but th that's just one part right I mean we, we should probably move on to your next part yeah, so DOCSIS 3.1 was the afternoon session, and you know some of the things we heard is we're going to be doing DOCSIS 3.1 trials starting in mid next year, mid 2015, and so that's that's pretty exciting. So it's going to be out in plants. People are going to be testing CMTSs and cable modems, and we, you know we also talked about then the fact that never before you know proactive maintenance. Proactive network maintenance is now part of the DOCSIS 3.1 specification, and that's going to be absolutely instrumental to help making the trials successful because we, you know it's it's going to be before we actually have test equipment available to analyze the signals, analyze the impairments and problems. So that was a big discussion point during the afternoon session, and and of course I saw you there uh, also heckling me in the front row. So was, of course, <laughs> I could keep you honest. <laughs> So, I mean, what are your thoughts on on three one coming out and and uh, give us your you know, feedback on that? You had the symposium, which was really good, and then uh, John Chapman was there as well. And then I went to some workshops later on that talked about three one as well with Larry Walcott, uh, George Salinger, um, and some other people. And there was a few points I picked out, and one for Larry was he was talking about how the new cable modems can you know the, do the PNM, the pre-equalization, uh, find problems proactively before customers complain because the pre-queue is kind of masking some of these issues uh, and also talking about the downstream full bandwidth capture so we can look at the spectrum in the downstream and you talked about that as well and I brought up in, uh, in Larry's workshop that another thing we should exploit here and talk about is the newer modems and gateways uh, Broadcom 338384 chips I think are uh, the newer modems um, they have a FTP server as well so you can remotely do speed tests without the customer having to do the speed test for you or setting up a Sam Knows type of system where, I don't know if you remember that when Sam Knows was putting out uh, remote speed tests, uh, PCs or whatever, however they were doing the test to try to qualify MSOs for speed at certain times of the day. Remember that that report that came out Absolutely. a few years ago? Absolutely, yep. Yeah, yeah, because they were basically baselining yeah. who had the fat, which operators, uh, comparing different cable operators and, and even different uh, telecom operators against each other. Yeah, so I mentioned that we could do that ourselves now, you know, like self-police. We could prove we're getting the speeds that we market, you know, if you will. Um, so I brought that up, and, um, uh, and for yours, I think um, we talked about the, uh, picking up LTE. So, I mean, some of the LTE, long-term evolution, some of it's coming from the cell phones themselves sitting it right beside a cable modem. So Ron Rannick actually corrected me during your presentation. So I was heckling you, and he was heckling me that was heckling you. <laughs> and he corrected me and said, the LTE is basically, it's not FCC approved for certain cities. It's, it's universal, about 700 to 800 megahertz. Yeah, so, universal within North America. In, in yeah, yeah. Different frequencies. Whereas, Whereas digital off-air broadcasters would be dictated by the FCC government, right? Right. By the FCC.gov would actually list what frequencies are allocated for certain broadcasters in certain cities. 
So, okay. and I mentioned that you know MSOs should know what those frequencies are and either avoid them or just be aware that there's potential ingress there. Yeah, and one of one of the things we were talking about also is part of uh, you know PNM is in the DOCSIS 3.1 specification. One of the cool things is if if you have 192 uh, megahertz wide DOCSIS 3.1 channel in a downstream, uh, there's going to be either roughly just under 4,000 or just under 8,000 subcarriers within that 192 megahertz channel, depending on whether you're using uh, 25 kilohertz or 50 kilohertz wide subcarriers. You have the, the ability to go in and actually shut off some of those subcarriers without the cable modems going off. And you, you create a notch within that 192 megahertz wide band. And so you, you may be wondering, you know, you, you see that some of the subcarriers aren't operating at a, at a high level modulation. So by creating a notch, maybe in the LTE band, and that's how we got on that topic, you could say, oh, now I see why, you know, some of these subcarriers are operating at a lower modulation. We have LTE ingress into our cable plant. And, you know, of course, if, if we have ingress, maybe we also have egress. And, that was the whole FCC thing that you know we, we don't want our signals leaking in. We also don't want our signals leaking out. Hung up so. for some reason. There you go. But um, I, I agree. We could notch out some frequencies that we know we have potential issues, and we have the capability on each subcarrier to do MER readings on a subcarrier basis, right? Uh, potentially change the power level on a subcarrier, maybe. Uh, but we definitely have the capability to change the modulation on a subcarrier basis, granularity. So there's some areas in my plant that might have low MER at the high end of the frequency band, and maybe 24 megahertz of my 192 megahertz channel, I use 256QAM. And 48 megahertz of that 192 megahertz channel, I use 1024QAM. And another 24 megahertz, I end up using 4096QAM. So I can manipulate the modulation within that big channel for the spectrum for certain areas and certain modems. I mean, John Chapman talked about doing four specific mod profiles. That would be, um, and it kind of fell in line with some of the testing that Comcast provided. They showed a bell curve of the MERs across the board for their millions of modems of who was on the low end of MER, downstream MER, who was on the high end. Now, granted, that's for maybe 1 to 12 RF channels. Here we're talking about 192 megahertz, which would be equivalent of what, 24 channels? Or mm -hmm. is it 32 yeah. channels? Uh, <laughs> Divide by 6. Yeah, Divide by, by 6. By six. <laughs> or, or 8 megahertz if you're in Europe. So it, yeah, it's going to... Yeah, it might be 32. Yeah, whatever it was. <laughs> um, but I, I found it you know, interesting that one thing I, I brought up that... Still, as an RF guy, I'm still, I still see Im improvement, sort of. Inside that 192 megahertz wide channel, uh, we can null out parts. We can do whatever we need to do, different power, different modulation. Uh, we could make it look, it doesn't have to be 192 contiguous. It might be contiguous, but we might notch out some so it doesn't look contiguous. Um, is inside that channel, there's pilot channels and there's control channels, but I don't know how to, how to explain this. In DOCSIS 3.0, a modem might do eight-channel bonding, but it uses one channel as a control channel. If you lose that control channel, the modem has to re-register. So it turns out, even in 
you're still going to have a control, maybe a bunch of subcarriers in 6 megahertz within that 192 megahertz. And if you lose that frequency, the modem is still going to have to re-register, I believe. Right. The control channel is the, the PLC, right? Was yeah. So, but knowing that, you might even say, this is my control channel, and I'm going to run him at 256 qualm, really robust. And in the band that I know is really robust and less likely to get interference from LTE and off-air broadcasters. Right. That's, that's the recommendation. We, the lower modulation and, and where it's unlikely to have uh, <laughs> impairments. So I, I thought that was you know, uh, kind of a key point also. I mean, we could do, obviously do a whole presentation or a Google Hangout on DOCSIS 3.1, yeah. uh, but we don't have time to do that here. So, yeah. So, so other things. So on the, onto the show floor itself, um, there was, as, as I had thought, like at Angocom, at Angocom we said that we saw a lot of remote FI products. So we, we did see that at uh, SCTE, a lot of uh, companies that were proposing remote FI. And, and so, you know, what uh, remote FI is basically taking the CMTS, especially the return portion of the CMTS, and putting it in the node. And, you know, so why? Why do we need to do this? It's because we want to get rid of that return path analog laser because it's, it's really a weak link in the DOCSIS network. you agree? I had that idea. I've been with Cisco 14 years, and I've been proposing that for 8 to 10 years. I said, because I always knew, as an RF guy, laser clipping was my killer. And I knew once we started doing more channels, higher modulation scheme, more laser loading, we were going to run into more problems. And we are. We're running into laser clipping. Now we try to optimize our lasers. We might even do baseband digital reverse, which was great. I usually get better MERs with a digital reverse. But it's like we're taking a, a modem that's digital, converting to analog, converting to digital, convert to analog, convert to digital. We're doing all this up-down conversion. I'm like, why don't we just put the chip in the node? That's assuming all the upstream traffic is DOCSIS, right? I mean, kind of like getting rid of all your legacy set-top boxes and maybe go in DSG, DOCSIS set-top gateway, so it's all DOCSIS signaling. But if we put the chipset in the node, then we just run the digital link back. There's no laser clipping on a digital link. It's just on and off. You could still have clipping of the A to D, the analog digital conversion, right? Because you still have to you know, de decode that information uh, and put it into the chipset. Um, but you have ingress cancellation now at the node because you have the chipset in the node. And I thought about that a long time ago, and no one was really for it until we started doing the modular CMTS where we pulled the downstream out and we had DEPI, Dex De Downstream External Phi Interface, but we also had this thing called UEPI, Upstream External Phi Interface, that no one implemented. And I said, all right, now let's do remote Phi, and Comcast was behind it. I believe they were behind it, and they may have never really promoted it um, because now you're taking the, the whole front end of the CMTS, downstream and upstream, and putting it out in the field. We found that you couldn't just put the upstream out in the field because the timing was an issue. So you can't really have a downstream, say, here and an upstream here, and the cable modem has to go all the way around. It was easier to put the downstream and upstream in the same location for better timing. Easy, because remember, DOCSIS is 6.25 microsecond ticks. Everything is based off of that. So the timing was really critical for time offsets, map advance, synchronization, registration, you name it. UGS flows for, for voice. So we put the downstream and upstream in the remote node, in a remote shelf. 
Now your CMTS is all packet processing. Cisco went the way of saying, let's put the Mac scheduler and the scheduling still in the CMTS, but just put the FI chip from Broadcom or whoever in the node, and now we found that we were able to go a lot farther distance than what DOCSIS says. You know, the original DOCSIS distance from cable modem to CMTS is about 100 miles. The new 3.1 spec dropped it to 50 miles. But in reality, with Remote Fi, the testing we've done, we've actually gotten 2,000 kilometers. Now that's, uh, what, 1,000 miles or so? Right, and, that, and that's because in, instead of an analog laser, you're using a, a digital laser. And yeah, digital link, which can be uh, bumped up, uh, re-cleaned uh, up, uh, amplified very easily because one zero one zero on off on off um, so we were able to test this for a lot farther distance I mean in theory you could have a CMTS located on the East Coast and remote five shelves or remote five nodes all across the East Coast the whole right. East Coast could be served by Atlanta <laughs> I'm just saying Atlanta because it's central for the East Coast so yeah. it's it it has some good impl implications. I mean, we're still stuck with an a HFC plants in the U.S., right? <laughs> but what if you say, I'm going to do node splits next year, and maybe this is the type of node split I do. Why yeah. do analog node splits? So, I, I mean, I think a, a critical aspect of this is we're, we're going to be upgrading the node in the DOCSIS specification, not to, to, to go further, you know, to get too deep into DOCSIS 3.1 in this, but... There, this is a great opportunity when you're upgrading your node to also look at expanding your return path to maybe 85 megahertz or you know, all the way up to 200 megahertz. There's this, this also gives us the, this is the time when you would increase your return path possibly. You have to go out and touch your, you know, a lot more amplifiers and stuff. We had this discussion in some of our other hangouts. There are other implications there, but when you need more return path bandwidth, you're going to be touching your node likely to do a remote phi because you want to get rid of that return path analog laser and this is this is a great time to start doing it because there's a lot of cost already in your node um, so it's good yeah. I mean the, the con the, the con to remote phi would be are you protected for redundancy on the node and probably not but it's a small service area are you protected on the CMTS yeah you have redundancy there power supplies fans performance routing engines or supervisors and all that but out in the field, probably not. Maybe you have redundant fibers. Maybe, maybe not. The other con would be, how do you get your analog video? You still have all your video you have to send down there. It's not all video over DOCSIS, right? Right. So, right it's going to be doing an overlay. You're happy. Yes, it will be an overlay for a while. You'll still have your, your analog video channels down there and your remote file down there. Uh, the other pitfall, we, you and I talked about this, test equipment. How do you do return path monitoring if there's no RF, upstream RF in the head end? The upstream RF stops at the node. So now the test equipment vendors need to start utilizing and exploiting some of the things that were built in the DOCSIS 3.1 spec to pull information from the node, that remote find node. Yeah, so, so on, you know, on to test equipment. So that, that was a, you know, a big topic there. And um, return path monitoring becomes quite complicated in remote FI. Uh, DOCSIS 3.1, we've built a lot of that in. We have the capability to do upstream and downstream spectrum analysis, upstream in the remote FI or CMTS, downstream and cable modems. Uh, the test equipment vendors themselves have, uh, they don't have DOCSIS 3.1 in their meters yet. That's on the roadmap, but uh, a lot of test equipment vendors have really, really advanced chipsets. They're, they're doing like 24 uh, channel bonding in their in their handheld test set sets, so that gives them. Uh, they're doing full band spectrum capture in their test sets, so 
uh, you know, so a lot of innovation coming out as the test equipment vendors are trying to move towards wideband capture modems in the in the te handheld test sets and getting ready for Doxus 3.1 because they know that the the cable operators are looking for that in in the near future. So, so uh, and I want to backtrack a little bit. I was in a workshop with George Salinger from Comcast, and someone asked the question. And, and actually, this is a good point too. Is it was kind of cool. Everyone has laptops nowadays and smartphones, and instead of I find that when I go to these workshops, at the end, everyone's kind of afraid to get up and go to the microphone and ask questions. Except for I, you. Except for me. I, I don't care. I'll jump up and I'll ask the question. And a lot of times, there's like five comments and one question. <laughs> well, yeah, it's 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 question one, four subparts. Question two, to seven subparts. To question two. <laughs> so so I'm not trying to heckle. I'm just trying to like. Almost be like the devil's advocate, like ask a question I think people have on their mind but are afraid to ask. So George had a great idea, and he says, if you have questions in the audience, email them to me during the presentation. So people were actually emailing him questions, and he got a lot more. So he was reading off the questions at the end um, instead of people going up to the microphone. Oh, that's, a, that's a nice idea because he got a lot more questions that way. And one of the questions that came up was, can I do... Do I have to do upstream and downstream Doxus 3.1? Or can I be can I do downstream 3.1 OFDM and upstream Doxus 3.0? So I still have my single 6.4 megahertz wide channels in the upstream, you know, 64 qualm, but my downstream uh, could be 3.0 and 3.1 running on the downstream. And he says, oh yeah, it's and, and the guys in the audience or the the co-presenters, they said, yeah, of course, it's kind of asymmetrical. The, pr the problem with DOCSIS 3.1 and downstream, you have to allocate spectrum for 3.1 and 3.0. You can't overlap. On the upstream, you can overlap the spectrum because one comes on and one goes off. So he said, yeah, we can do 3.1 and the downstream, uh, but you have to allocate more spectrum, and you could do 3.0 in the upstream. And I came back and I said, I'd like to flip that question around and actually propose, I think, the power of 3.1 is more in the upstream. The upstream is already bandwidth and spectrum uh, limited. If I can get higher speed on the upstream by giving one customer, say I cherry pick the customer that wants high speed, 300 megabits per second, I give him a 3.1 modem, he can do maybe 1024 qualm in the upstream, maybe, at a full bandwidth of 5 to 42 megahertz OFDMA. Now, he's time-sharing it with the 3.0 and 2.0 modems, but when he's bursting, he could potentially get a lot higher speed. On the downstream, maybe 24, 32 downstream bonding 3.0, he's still okay there. So I said, I, I think that's kind of the way I could get more speed out of my limited upstream. But George turned around and said, Comcast is actually looking at 3.1 on the downstream to offer one gig service. Because they know a 32 downstream bonded modem can only offer 1.2 gig. And normally, even my own recommendation and rule of thumb is don't offer more than half of what your aggregate speed is. So if the modem can do 1.2 gig, you shouldn't go above 600 meg as an offering. But they know if they do OFDMA at 4096 qualm, 1024 qualm, 256 qualm, whatever, 192 megahertz wide, maybe two 192 megahertz wide channels, they can offer a gig service on the downstream. And that's sort of their reasoning behind 3.1 on the downstream, assuming they have the spectrum, of course. I think a lot of analog reclamation, squeezing the channels, 
uh, maybe going to one gig. There was a lot of talk also about going to 1.2 gig, but they're finding that going to 1.2 gig, some of the taps won't support it. Cabling yeah. will probably support it, but taps won't. Yeah, there was a lot of loss. You know, George was also asked the question uh, by someone: Where are they going to put the, the you know, 200 megahertz of, or 192 megahertz of uh, uh, Dox's channel? And he said, "Well, in the unused RF spectrum." <laughs> and that's kind of a kind of a, a tongue-in-cheek joke because there's not un, unused RF spectrum, and that's the challenge for a lot of cable operators: is making space for that big wide channel. Um, but that you know that is that's that's a challenge for everyone because especially, we have to go through. Only, and, especially if you're only 24 channels of Doctor 30. Yeah, and that's you know so that's part of the conversion figuring out. Yeah, like you said, you know we'll we'll probably won't put 192 megahertz channels starting day one. We'll put something much smaller. We'll have notches for the existing Doxus channels, and then over time we'll start to consolidate those Doxus 30 channels and expand the 192 megahertz as we can. But yeah, I like I really like you said uh, George said you know email me the questions and and that's one of the things that we don't get a lot of questions on our Google Hangouts I think because people know that their names uh, are going to show up in the Q and A box so I, that's a recommendation that I would have for people um, especially people that listen to these Hangouts afterwards you can email John and I questions and then we can always do uh, take your questions Follow at up. the next Hangout that we do and and we will not mention your names if you're worried about <laughs> Asking us the questions, you know, there's, there's no, the, the only bad question is the question you don't ask. Uh, so please feel free to email us our questions directly or, or submit them, um, you know, however you like. But uh, uh, you know, you can, you can find my email all over the place or send it to info at Volt Firm and, and John. I know your 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 emails all over the place. So <laughs> jdownitsisco.com. But yeah. I, I would say that I would be interested in other people's views of the SCT Expo. Uh, you and I have talked about this, and over the last 10 years, we see a lot of change, change in dates, change in style, um, change in attire. You know, it used to be people would be there in polo shirts, you know, and there'd be a lot of RF techs handling hardware, and there would be test equipment and troubleshooting and the latest and greatest stuff that's out. I used to think of the Western show and the cable show as what's coming out in six months, and the expo as here, here it is. Now people are in suits and ties, and there's more software-driven applications and less hardware. And I'm not seeing as much demos of real equipment powered up anymore. Even in our own booth, some of our equipment was not powered because it just generates more heat and more noise, and we're trying to do like talks as we walk through the booth. Yep. Um, it is what it is, right? Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I do see I, a change I, a little bit. I was wearing a tie two days out of the week there because you know when I was presenting I was wearing a tie so it's uh, it, it does change the the way that uh, the the show has definitely changed over time. You know what I see? It's kind of like the expo is now becoming the grassroots part of it is the local vendor events like the SCT local yeah, events, shows. the vendor days. Yep. Then you can get you know the local guys, the, their bosses and managers will actually let them off for the day to actually go touch the equipment, maybe ask some questions to the vendors. 
uh, and that's sort of where I see this maybe filling the gap or things changing. The other thing was the last time we were in Denver at the ST Expo, two what was it, three four years ago? Yeah, we had a snowstorm. Two foot of snow. <laughs> two foot of snow. Uh, this time we lucked out. Seventy five degrees. It was beautiful. It's beautiful. Huh? One thing that that hasn't changed at Expo are are the uh, the show floor giveaways, and, and I, I have my two show floor favorite giveaways that I've picked up. One one was from the the symposium and and this is from the uh, uh, the, the sponsors of the symposium. So I want to give a shout out to Amdocs. This was a cool little gadget that they gave us for showing out. What it is, it has a you know USB uh, that you connect into your charger and then it has all these other little ports on there. So it's like you know for the old iPod devices, iPhones, iPads, the new iPhone charger and then all the the USB Charging devices that you could get everything back from the old Blackberries to the latest uh, iPhone devices. So that I, I really like that. I'm, I'm using that already. The other one, this is this is cool. It's, it's kind of hokey looking at first. You know, it it's, looks like something you want to put up here. But this is <laughs> this is from uh, Data Hardware Depot, and and I didn't think it worked in, until I tried it. But what it is, you you put your iPhone in it, and uh, it amplifies the sound coming out of your iPhone. And it's absolutely awesome. I, I mean, this is this is a great little, great little giveaway that you get, and and of course it's super light to put in there, but it, yeah, it amplifies the mu music. And I was so excited, and they had it in blue, which is my favorite color, of course. So <laughs> I had to get that. I was, they had multiple colors. I I gotta have blue, because that's uh, that's my favorite color. So yeah, so everyone gets, you know, that goes, you get the show floor giveaways, and that, and that's just that's that's part of the fun of the show. So I, I don't know if you got anything fun that you brought. I got back. one of those little LED like digging there. Yeah, I'm digging around. I got one of those little LED flashlight thingies, and I always pick up like a little coaster. It's a leather coaster. It's it like lasts me forever. Yeah. I I, I kind of when I'm hungry I gnaw on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's zero carbs for you. Yeah, so. I'm low carbonate, so I just gnaw on that for a while. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the Here's other. Get the teeth on. The other thing that absolutely tickled me was uh, uh, our friend uh, Steve W. I, I won't give away any more information than that. He came up to me and he said, "You know, I really like the fact that you guys are on iTunes because I can download the iTunes and just listen to the audio version of of uh, you and I speaking." And he says, "And and that's the best because then I don't have to see John's face uh, <laughs> when I'm listening to, to you guys talking." That, that, that was great. I laughed when he said that. <laughs> This is the money maker. What's wrong with this? What's wrong with this right here? <laughs> no, you didn't have any problem with my face. It was, it was yours. So. <laughs> but you are right. The giveaways, uh, I, they kind of dwindled down. They used to be walking sticks and a lot of USB uh, thumb, thumb drives, you know, memory thumb drives and stuff like that. So I don't see as much giveaways as there used to be, you know, the bouncing balls with the glow-in-the-dark lights and stuff or whatever it was. You know, you held up that USB thing. That right there is an oxymoron. How can it be a universal serial bus when there's like 15 different styles? Yeah. How is it universal? <laughs> <laughs> I always hated that. <laughs> start out that way. So, well, I think we did our our, our cover for the uh, for Expo, John. We'll uh, we'll come up with a topic for next time, and uh, I think that's that's about all we have for now. As I said, I, I think it's a good idea if people can email us questions, we can get a, a good uh, feel. Uh, for what people are looking for, and that would be a great way to get more more Q and A on on our uh, on our hangouts here. Yeah, I'm definitely so. interested in what other people think about you know the show floor and if they went and comments and stuff like that.
Yep. So mine is brady.volp at volpfirm.com. Mails our questions. And mine's jdowney at cisco.com. All right. John, once again, it's been a pleasure. Have a great weekend. Everyone else, have a great weekend. All right. Thanks. Oh, <laughs> yeah.